This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. You know, off the back of smoking is a health hazard. Are we going down the slippery slope? Are we going to see the end of gambling ads? Oh, gosh, I hope so. At some point. I hope so too. And the federal government, if they've done this, should have the balls to go further into banning gambling ads, the ones that they're allowing to go on TV before 8.30, before the kids go to bed. I think for the state government, the Andrews government, to be spending money as they walk out the door. Now, they might be walking back in again after the election. We don't know. But it's that a bit uncomfortably with me? I thought, gee, Jimmy looks at Douglas Henshaw, of course, looks a little bit older and, dare I say, a tiny bit paunchier. But then I realised I hadn't seen Series 6. Oh, so you've double binged. I've double binged. I went back. Mrs Harris is so sugary, it will give you a toothache. Look, Jane and I looked at each other at the end of it and I just said, well, that's a fairy tale for grown-ups. He later said in 2014, he revised that story and said it was actually dedicated to his wife, Marsha. Anyway. Whose name is not don't shoot the messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkins. Welcome everybody to episode 242 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. It's spring in Melbourne, but it's not, and I'm here with my dear friend Corey Perkins. How are you, Corey? Oh, Caro, 3 months into spring. Well, Who not, would have thought? Yeah, well, not yeah, sort of one month in and probably one of the Two more months? miserable. September, October. So we're into our third month. Oh, I see what you mean. It's I was thinking it's three months in total. We're only at the start of November. Fair enough. Yes, you're right. Um, I, I think the most, the wettest, most miserable Melbourne Cup day since 1913, but still lots of people went, so that was great. Haven't really managed to get into the racing spirit myself this year. But we do have a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the Diamonds. We're all geared up for the British Film Festival, which started last week, which I'm well, a couple of weeks ago, actually, but it's got about three weeks to go. And we've got lots of films to talk about. I'm resurrecting a favourite old recipe. You've got a fabulous new book. And Corrie... I think you're going to kick us off with a bit of a shame-faced apology. Yeah, very, very shame-faced. Look, I apologise to the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, better known by me last week, apparently six times according to one listener, Sumac. All I can not say... The spies. Yeah, yeah, and not Miss the Jane, spies. don't you love Miss Jane? You wrote it wrongly in the show notes. You, you both are disgrace. <laughs> oh, I we think had you a... called it... No, somebody said you'd also called him Richie Sumac well, once. I was you probably were following me. parroting you. And, Corrie, we admonished Joe Biden. No, I'm completely putting my hand up. I didn't correct you. Can I finish with my apology? We admonished Joe Biden. I know. Well, look, the whole thing is people in glass houses should not throw stones. So, <laughs> so there I was uh, laughing tittering at Joe Biden's expense because he couldn't pronounce the new British Prime Minister's name. And lo and behold, neither could I. So our show notes, there's no defence here, but in the show notes, which I type up usually at about midnight the night before, um, it just slipped my, I, I know he's Rishi Sunak. I had been following the whole drama for months, truth be told. And I just wrote Sumac in all of the show notes. So poor, don't blame poor Miss Jane. She was just following my lead. Well, um, anyway, we had lots she's of meant correspond- to be our minder. <laughs> we- she's our wingman. <laughs> we had our filterer, Jane. What happened to you, you filterer? Our fact um, checker. Fact checker. Yeah, you fact checker. You fucking checker, you. Um, now, listen, Jane, it's not your fault at all. And it is totally I am to blame. And all, look, these things happen all the time, but Jane, um, turning a positive, a negative into a positive, Jane did say to us before, Caro, that wasn't it lovely to see so many, many people writing in. We have a lot of active potties out there. Well, yes, great, Jane, but it's at my expense. So thanks for that. But thank look, you, I'm Judy very Paul sorry. from Brisbane. And um, keep listening, even though we're not from Brisbane. And thank you for saying you wish there was a Brisbane equivalent to Don't Shoot the Messenger. But, Corrie, this hysterical and rather lengthy email from Sumac at yahoo.com. It's hysterical. It is absolutely hysterical. 
I and, think you um, should write. I think you should read parts of it, Cara. I know you often uh, just do a little overview, but I think you should read parts because not Rishi Sumac at yahoo.com has actually written, a, crafted a beautiful piece. Well, it opens, darling Carol and Corey. I can't do the accent. My media advisors, Rosemary Basil and Angelica, have alerted me to your recent con- con- podcast. I was fortunate to be able to listen to parts of it after a salty session in the Commons where His Majesty's opposition was left in a coma. <laughs> Um, on the floor of the Commons. Now, he goes on about the popular spice, which is pretty funny, and he has a crack at us for, you know, sarcastically for having a crack at Joe Biden. But there's so many spicy, salty, um, well, there's a a lot of, there's a lot, what's the word, Jane, puns? I must curry away now to attend matters of state. The Spice Girls, a good name for the Don't Shoot the Messenger team, I venture, have popped in to wish me well, but in departing, I leave you with a good local tip. From another mutually admired friend of the pod, Yotam Ottolinghi, and his pertinent recipe suggestions, eight Ottolinghi recipes to get you cooking with sumac. (laughs) (laughs) May Lord Rama bless you with the best virtues of life and endow DSTM, that's us, with success. Happy Diwali. Diwali. Thank you. 2002 and God Save the King. Yours condimentally. (laughs) Not Rishi Sunak or Sumac. Anyway, very, very funny. It was funny and also funny too. I just have to alert potties to, I think, look, I'm a fan of Jimmy Reese. His Instagram account is hilarious. I think he is at the moment the funniest person in Australia. Uh, But he topped it. So we are recording this on the day after the Taronga Park Zoo lions escaped. They were found, thankfully, and herded in, but they escaped. Within about six hours, Jimmy Reese had turned around this hysterical video, Carol, which I just showed you, and I it think is very you're still short playing. Guys, let's go. We're free. <laughs> and then it's a crossover to a lion, Jimmy in another lion costume with a string of pearls, saying, do you mean we have to leave Mossman? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And then the other lion says, the other lion who has, um, who's holding, swinging its cafe latte with its big furry face says, can we go via military road and get a latte? I love <laughs> the line about the bone broth latte. No, it's very, it's very funny. I the, mean, the funniest line though, can I just say, is the, the one who wants to escape who's trying to encourage the more reluctant lions to leave Mossman says, we don't want to live like Mossman queens. We want to live like Lion Kings. <laughs> this morning, five lions escaped their enclosure at Sydney's Taronga Zoo. Guys, guys, let's get out of here. Roar! Come on, come on. Like, where are we going to go? Well, we could go anywhere. We're, we're bloody free. Like anywhere? Yes, anywhere. Come on, come on, hurry up, let's go. But like, f***ing, where are we going to go? The middle of Australia. I don't care. Let's go. Wait, wait, wait. But isn't that over the bridge? Yes, it's over the bridge. Like, out of Mossman. Yes. Out of Mossman. Anyway, have a look at that, everyone, if you want a good laugh. And um, luckily, it stayed a funny story and not oh. not a bad story because oh, the, the people camping out that night and were told were rustled up and out of their tents and they had to jump into the enclosure. It was terrifying. It is one of the more beautiful walks around Tarong, not the actual zoo, which is a great zoo in terms of the locality and the geography of it, but walking around the cliffs of Taronga Park is one of the more beautiful walks you'll ever do, Corrie. Now, we also need to apologise for telling everyone to watch North Sea Connection and saying that it was on Netflix. Now, our friend of the podcast, Megan, alerted me to this, and I said we couldn't possibly have done that. We know it's on SBS, but then I received a couple of emails. Oh, yes, and then a shout-out to Anna Minter, who sent about three, I think. They were having an apoplectic fish yeah, at almost, home. almost a domestic over it. They couldn't find it. It is Which great. Which is not uncommon. Do you often have domestics over the Netflix slash oh, Paramount? Well, particularly, and then it ends up, why have we even got this one anyway? And what do you ever watch? And how much is it costing? And this is stupid. We can't even use it. What's the point? Anyway, yes, I know I, I can relate, um, Anna. So sorry, everyone. North Sea Connection is a great Irish drama. It is on SBS On Demand. Megan, you were right. And she's given us a great tip about this new film, Living, starring Bill Nye, which um, she's seen a preview of. Oh, you can stream yes. it online. I, sh- I, I saw the shorts of that yesterday, Cara, when I went and saw one of the others, other films I'll be talking about in a minute. But um, it looks uh, it looks. Uh, it's it's a bleak beginning, um, but it's amazingly uplifting. Although 
I was with my friend Jane and she said, I think I've seen the whole movie now. <laughs> no, well, Megan said that. Megan said, don't be fooled. It's a okay. slow burn. Okay. Anyway, Corrie, before we get on to the Brit Film Festival, and oh, oh Jane, we'll mention the, mention the Castle Main Cinema in a moment. But um, the could diamond. Say, sorry, before we go on, can I just say, Miles is coming in in a minute. We had a fantastic night at Prince Wine Store last week, didn't we, Caro? We did. And, and we Miles th- is so buoyant about it. He's riding his bike in to talk about it. And guess <laughs> well, what, Corrie? Pale Pink Wines is on his agenda today. Oh. Well, that's it. <laughs> I'll get you over the line. Did I just love the lady, um, the potty who I met. I can't remember your name. I'm so sorry. It was very, it was lovely to meet everybody. But she said, can I just ask, do you drink a lot? <laughs> <laughs> can I just say. I, I didn't know how to answer that. I was back at Prince Wine Store yesterday to pick up some of my order because everything we were drinking and recommended was sold out. That We cleaned them out. So well done, don't shoot the messenger listeners, and well done, Prince Wine Store. Mm, we had good an absolute conversion ball. rate, girls and boys. Now moving on to the diamonds. Yes. Last week we were talking about the ethics of sponsorship, and you know how how strongly do you judge, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <coughs> Lo and behold, within a matter of days, the Victorian government, via their tourist arm, Visit Victoria, has come in with the fifteen million dollars needed by Netball Australia to sponsor the diamonds. Now. People have found fault with this story because if you have issues with Gina Hancock and Hancock mining, prospecting, do you have an issue with the Victorian government? I sort of don't mind the idea of a tourist um, sponsoring a netball team, particularly if it means more sport in Victoria because I'm a sport person and I, I love sport. And I also am really glad that the Diamonds have got a sponsor and I gather that there are a few state governments jockeying for this. Well, Caro... All I can say is there must be an election in the air. I did a bit of research on behalf of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I know you'll be shocked to hear that Jane's fallen on the floor. But um, the biggest uh, – you would know this, Carol, because you've been covering sport a long time. But the um, the uh, the sport with the most women participants over the age of 15 is netball with 570,000 participants. And those are just um, women and girls who have actually signed up to join – their particular local competition. So it doesn't include all the kids who are playing at, at lunchtime on the basketball court. And I think that is a pretty compelling reason to throw some money behind this. As I said to you last week, Caro, is there not a, a, a sponsor with foresight or indeed a corporation that's having a bit of image problem out there? I can think of a couple of banks and, and whoever um, who wouldn't have just kind of picked up the mantle that was dropped so conveniently by Gina Han- Hancock and actually said, look, we'll get behind it. But no, Visit Victoria did. I think this is often problematic. It is spending the taxpayers' money. The taxpayers are the stakeholder. Uh, Hawthorne, one person said to me yesterday, oh, it's a bit like Hawthorne really, Hawthorne sponsor, being sponsored by the Tasmanian government. But I think that's a bit different because the Hawthorne Football Club has a board of directors, they have their stakeholders, no doubt they consulted a vast number of people and they have some skin in the game down in Tassie. They play but their regular part of their But part that's of their exactly what the Diamonds are doing. Like part of the deal is they but have they to play, play more finals in here. I know, but it's just it, it's I don't very know, it's similar, just, really. It, well, I, yeah, I just um, and it's actually a more worthy cause than a very wealthy AFL football club that makes the, the only profits Hawthorne makes every year when you get to the bottom line is from the pokies. I just think that there are taxpayers involved, Caro, and that for me is the difference. So whether the people in Tasmania had an issue with this or whether they were consulted, I don't know. But Well, they that, were and they loved it. Well, and nobody consulted us. I didn't hear anybody saying they didn't consult election the, campaign. No, they didn't consult the Tasmanian taxpayers and either. So I thought we were in, ta- I thought we were in caretaker mode. I mean, maybe this decision was made last week before we were in caretaker mode. But it was. I think for the state government, the Andrews government, to be spending money as they walk out the door. Now, they might be walking back in again after the election. We don't know. But it just seemed, the timing just seemed a bit, um, well, obvious. But it was just, I, I thought it was just a bit, um, it sat a bit uncomfortably with me, I have to say. On the upside, though, gosh, like what a wonderful lifeline to the netballers. Well, I think the, the reason it sat comfortably with me was there's absolutely no way the opposition wouldn't have supported it. You couldn't... I mean, netball has always been the number one participant sport in the country for women, 
And, you know, that's been since, you know, you and I were writing columns about women's sport back in the early 80s and back to the 70s. Since you were playing 60s. wing defence and well, I was, I was a hopeless. <laughs> I was always in defence and I was hopeless. But, um, Me too. Um, I was a terrible netballer. But it's always been the biggest sport, but it's only now got a media presence. You know, it's being strongly supported by shows like Offsiders on the ABC. They've got a, meet, they've got a TV deal now. You know, finally they've got some skin in the game commercially. Plus, you know... Never has there been a better time to get bang for your buck than last week because it was one of the biggest sports stories in the country. And how perfect for Visit Victoria, who, you know, governments are putting in... The South Australian government, I understand, it hasn't happened yet, but they're going to win the Magic Round football series that the AFL have dreamt up, you know, where they're going to have a round of footy in one state. Now, the original plan was to do it in New South Wales, um, to try and promote footy in Western Sydney where it's really struggling against, you know, NRL, et cetera, and soccer. And they were going to play all nine AFL games over one round, an extra round, so an extra round of footy in the season in New South Wales. Well, the South Australian Premier and West Australia have come in with massive multi-million dollar offers. They're going to suspend all footy in South Australia that weekend, like Sandfall and the Amateurs, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to have a game in the Barossa Valley. Most of the games will be at Adelaide Oval. And they're putting in millions of dollars. So you so, th- is... so you think that sport that, that government and sport is a very comfortable mix? Oh, well, Corey, I mean, in a country at, our size, look at the, it probably look at the has MCG to be. deal and Docklands, that big announcement from the state government back in twenty was it eighteen, mm. which tied the grand final to the MCG till we're dead. Mm, but that's just not it's not an individual kind of team, is it? But look, anyway, well, with, um, the, with I was interested when yeah. I was doing my research. About the well, Hawthorne's an individual team, and North Melbourne, who are also being sponsored. I know, sponsored. but I, I'm, I've, I've never, I've, I've never felt kind of comfortable about being a Victorian-based team being sponsored by Tasmania. It's just always been a little weird to me. But they, play, but that's a, how they play. Aren't you more uncomfortable with your pokey sponsorship? I'm very Which uncomfortable. You know, I'm very uncomfortable. I'm very uncomfortable with. I mean, he's gone now, but Jeff Kennett. But oh, well, that's an interesting story. Who's going to take over the presidency? Yeah, well, Jeff tried to orchestrate his man, but... I know, it hasn't worked. Kara, just on the, the um, sporting snag. participation, I also discovered, which I was really surprised to see, that the number one sport being played by men is, is rugby league. Did you know that? Is that in numbers? It's in numbers. Around the country? Well, I guess there are more people... Are there more people in... New, yeah, clearly, there are, Melbourne have overtaken Sydney in terms of population, but I think in New South Wales, clearly. Yeah, it's, I, I was a bit surprised. New South Welshmen. I didn't know that. Anyway, know that. Um, on to the film festival. So what have you seen? Well, nothing yet. Oh, I've I was beaten going, you. I'm going tonight with mum and I have bought tickets. Mum's bought tickets to everything. She's going to the film about Lancaster. She's going to the film about Richard III. Tonight we're going to see a film called Joyride with, um, is it Olivia Coleman? Yes, it is. And I think that looks really good. And then on next Monday night we're going to see a film called There's Always Hope. But you've been to see Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which I reviewed a few weeks ago as a book. You did, the Paul Gallico book. And uh, I, I went with uh, a friend of the pod, Jane Lamerton, the dress designer. I thought that was a rather appropriate thing. And, um, yeah, we were both a little underwhelmed. I think the Finn Reviews headline said it best, Mrs. Harris is so sugary it will give you a toothache. Look... <laughs> Jane and I looked at each other at the end of it and I just said, well, that's a fairy tale for grown-ups. And she said, you're absolutely right. Apart from the frocks and there is the wonderful scene when Mrs. Harris, as Carol explained the other day in her book review, um, through a variety of different means, including the soccer, soccer pools, she gathers enough money to buy her dream, to, to, to have her dream come true, which is to buy a Christian Dior dress. Remember, this is set in the 1950s at the time of the new look and um, post-war England and everything was pretty dry. Grab. Mrs. Harris's husband has died in the war, and so her her mission is to just have one of life's happinesses. So she takes herself off to Paris. She ends up if it, she, you know, of course the vendeurs and all of the directories who's played beautifully by Isabelle Huppert um, are a bit uh, condescending when she arrives. But of course she flashes her readies and they say yes. Well, we're, and it turns out that the House of Dior at this point in its history is struggling. So if you can believe single-handedly Mrs. Harris, the char lady from, um, where is she from? Um, well, she's in, she's e- sort of in East, East London. Yeah, yeah she's, um, 
not Brixton. Anyway, I'm trying to. I'll think of it in a sec. Battersea. She lives in Battersea, and she's she cleans people's houses. If you can believe that she single handedly uh, saves the house of Dior from ruin, well, which doesn't it doesn't really happen in the book. I mean, it's it, <laughs> Mum was cross. Mum Mum didn't like it. She went oh, she with Clem, my daughter, and they. Um, Clem really liked it. She just said, beautiful visual eye candy. Anna from the op shop liked it. Our other friend Katie didn't like it. There was a lot of disagreement. I mean, I think if you go with low expectations for a bit of froth, it's great. But mum said not even great shots of Paris. Not even great shots, Cara. It was yep. really surprising. And I know that there's always an issue when you're filming uh, a period drama in a modern city, it's always a dilemma of like get the car, the modern cars, get people talking, get them off with people with jeans and iPhones. Go to the left, you know. You've got to create that scene, and it's difficult. But I, I was ready to after not travelling for so long. I was ready to go on a bit of a Paris excursion with Mrs. Harris, and the the plane ride was really clunky. They, they, they tried a few gags, and it didn't work. Oh, there's the Eiffel Tower, she says, as she looks out the plane window. Mm, yeah, kind of, maybe not. Um, look, <laughs> Leslie Manville as Mrs. Harris, who actually plays Princess Margaret in the last couple of series of The Crown, is pretty good. Isabel Uppe does a lot with a little part, um, a pretty pathetic part. But, um, oh, I don't know, Lambert Wilson as the Marquis was just like a wet rag. The he, one appears other... in, he appears in the next in the sequel book called Mrs. Harris Goes to New York. Oh, okay. Just if you wanted to read. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> enjoyable light Thanks, read. Thanks, I won't be. The one actor I did really enjoy, and I do every time, and I was wrecking my brains thinking, I know you've been in things like Midsummer Murders, but how do I know you so well? Jason Isaacs, he plays uh, the friend of the, the um, he's a bookie and he's a friend of, of Mrs. Harris in London. And I realised, of course, oh my God, of course, it's Lucius Malfoy from Harry Potter. Oh. So <laughs> they've, all, um, they've all turned up in Harry Potter somewhere, let's face yet it. Yet another, yet another. Anyway, look, it was good, as Cara said, it, it, you know, a bit of light froth. Um, but for me, I'm with you, Mum, I was a bit underwhelmed. Cara, a couple of ones that I, I know you and I are going to see, the one with um, Emma Thompson, which escapes my mind at the moment. But I yeah, did what's see, love got to do with it? That's it. I can't wait to see that. There were shorts yesterday, which a deep, heavy, beautifully shot, beautiful landscape Irish drama called The Banshees of Inner Sharon. It stars Colin Farrell, who I love, and Brendan Gleeson, who is just such a great acting talent. And the other one, I think I might have texted you about this saying, do you want to go and see it? But we didn't get our act together. Is Emily based on the life of Emily yep. Bronte. Which has had really good reviews. It has, hasn't it? So the, what do, what have you got lined up? Well, this one is only on one night um, in the British Film Festival. Um, it opens, I think, at the Astor on the oh, in a couple of Saturday nights. It's called Empire of Light. It's, it's directed by Sam Mendes, you know, famous theatre and film director. And um, it stars Olivia Colman again. Um, it was, it's also got Toby Jones and Colin Firth. And it's just, it's um, a love letter to cinema set in an English seaside town. You had me at hello, early nineteen and early nineteen eighties. Um, a powerful and poignant story about human connection and the magic of cinema. I'm so cognizant of stories about cinema at the moment because I spoke last week and you and I are both heartbroken about the Sorrento Cinema's forthcoming imminent closure. We got a beautiful um, email from a potty regarding the Castle Main Cinema and how that, despite all odds, has sort of stayed open, another wonderful historic building. But after seeing, you know, the lost city of Melbourne and all the wonderful cinemas that have closed in the city and, you know, surrounding suburbs of Melbourne, I just, yeah, let's all go to the British Film Festival and yeah, go to the well, Astor and go to the Como and go to the Brighton Bay and, and the I West do, And I do and hope that Empire of Light has a general release because it sounds it sounds it a really sounds beautiful, beautiful book, doesn't it? A, a beautiful film. So looking forward to that. Yes, I just think the British Film Festival, they nail it every year. Uh, it is on at a busy time of year, I know that, but it was so lovely yesterday to just rock up to the cinema at 11am with... Palace um, Cinemas, of course, is yeah, Palace sponsoring Cinemas, the whole show. Say. Palace Cinemas, who we hope saved the Sorrento um, cinema. And what's the Spring Fling Literary Festival? So, 
here I've got one for you. I have one of these for you and Miss Jane. They're both bookmarks. So as you know, oh. uh, declaring my vested interest, I'm on the board of the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. And the Wheeler Centre, uh, along with the Melbourne City Council, have launched a mini writers festival. But it's writers, music, thinkers, the most incredible uh, kind of lineup. Last night I went to uh, an amazing, amazing show um, Caro at the Melbourne Town Hall. Isn't that a wonderful venue? I have to say, I think the Melbourne Town Hall is um, is an absolutely ripper of a ripper. Of I just a place. always I'm always thinking of school speech nights whenever I oh, go do there. You? <laughs> but Claire, no, Bo- Claire Bowditch was MC. She also sang a, a Joni Mitchell song, which was um, really fantastic. And we had a number of um, wonderful um, writers. Um, the The theme was your light bulb moment. And uh, there were many that were so interesting, but in particular, Dr. Anne Summers, uh, the longtime Australian feminist, um, former editor of Ms. Magazine, Australian journalist of great note, she talked about the night that um, when she was 18 in 1962, I think it was, or 63, uh, she lived in Adelaide. She came over to Melbourne. She was a bit lost. Um, She'd finished school, didn't know what to do. She didn't want to be a nun or a nurse or a teacher, which were the seemed to be the choices of career in her Catholic family. And Anne Summers had dinner, was taken out to dinner with her aunt, by her aunt Nance, to Fanny's restaurant in Melbourne. And Nance had never married. And over a glass of champagne, this 18-year-old girl looked at Nance and thought, oh my God, you don't have to have children get married become a nurse, become a nun, to have a wonderful life. Nance talked about her adventures, her journeys, her work. And Anne, at that moment, that was her light bulb moment. Well, I had, um, I had, I, I was very emotional when I heard that story. She told it, or she wrote it beautifully and she told it. And I thought, gosh, we forget, don't we, what life was like for women in the early 60s. And, yeah. and Anne Summers went on to be such a huge contributor. She worked with Paul Keating and his government, as we know. Janie, do you remember when you and I interviewed her for the book pod? Wasn't she wonderful? I was going to say, you and I got to go to her hotel room in the city, set up like we knew what we were doing, and talk to someone who I've learnt a lot more about her since. But I'm going to put the link to the book pod in the show notes. Oh, well, that would be really nice <laughs> of you. Look, it was just it's just great, Carol, but there's a whole lot of different things over the next 10 days. Jump on to wheelercentre.com.au, W-H-E-E-R-Centre.com.au, and you'll see lots of amazing things, including one I'm going to on Saturday, which is Helen Garner's 80th birthday. Wonderful. So there you go. There's um, I see Virginia Gay, who was in that... Um Savage River, Virginia Gay is involved, and Julia Zamiro, who I love. Alice Zaslavsky. Alice Zaslavsky, that's right. A cooking friend. Maxine Beniba Clark last night did a wonderful light bulb moment. She is an amazing talent. Um, What's Annabelle Crabb doing? I don't know what Annabelle Crabb is doing. I haven't seen that one. Where everything, is she? Everything she does, we you know, we love. We yes. love. So it's, Ash Barty. It, yeah, Ash Barty, because her her um, autobiography is coming out uh, in a couple of weeks. So she's doing a night, and there's a wonderful. If you're interested in it, um, Marcia Langton and a, and a group are discussing um, the voice to parliament um, on Saturday afternoon. I think it's at the town hall. Anyway, lots to see and listen to through the Willis Centre. And you know, last night, Kara, I walked back to my car, which was parked around the Botanic Garden. So it was a walk in the dark. Not, I wasn't nervous. I didn't feel nervous or anything. It was very, very cold. But gosh, Melbourne was sparkly and beautiful. It was so nice to be back in town at night time. I haven't done that a lot since we came out of lockdown. So Melbourne, well done. You had your party frock on last night. I went out last night, but and I had a nice night, but you know, I would have said cold and rainy as opposed to. Oh, it was really, it was so cold. I took a, I took a video of myself on the Prince's Bridge and, you know, it looked like it was about to snow and um, I thought, no, nah, I can't even say this is positive. I can't say it doesn't Melbourne look beautiful between my rattling teeth, so I deleted it. Um, there you go. Now, I think, um, Caro, do we hear the little twinkle, tinkle of glasses and the little trolleys coming in for miles. I think it's time to open the cocktail cabinet. Miles, thank you for coming in. What a wonderful night we had last week at Prince Wine Store. Met some lovely new friends and met some lovely new wines. It was it was really cool. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Nice and casual, which was perfect. It was. I and think, you were yeah. a 
excellent barman and host. And I Lots want – I've, I've already warned Corey, but the, the pale pink – I think it was a Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio, the brothers Colonel. Colonel Brothers, yeah, Colonel, Pinot Gris, Adelaide Hills. I sort of raved about Corey, didn't I, at the start of the show? Well, the start of the um, event – and then it sold out and I couldn't get yeah. any, but I've managed, you've got some more in. I think he'd rave, rave to a few people and they came up to me. And well, it was in the, <laughs> I had it was to show in your, them where it was on the shelf. And it I was in your spring mix dozen. It which, was, yeah. Oh, that wasn't, which has been I really was popular. thinking, I don't remember having that in the tasting, so it wasn't actually in the tasting. No. No. Oh, so you, you went off-piste. I went yep. off-piste and it's a beautiful, it's a, It's not a rosé, but it looks like a pale rosé. No, it's a so, gris and they just. They, they give it a little bit of skin contact, so it just it takes some of the colour out of the skins. And Pinot Gris has this wonderful, like, blush, orange, kind of peachy salmon kind of colour, so it just pulls it. You see it a little bit more today in uh, sort of modern Australian Gris. There's a lot of people who like to just put a couple of hours on skins and it just gives it this nice little blush colour. Tar and Roses is one that does that. Yeah. Yep. It's so great. Tell it's, us and it's about a wine. the Kerner Brothers. Who are they? So a couple of young guys out of the Adelaide Hills. So are um, you saying Kerno or Kerno? So it's K-O-E-R-N-E-R, Kerno. Okay. Yeah, we always deal with Jono, so that's the only p- person I've met from there. I think they've had a family vineyard for a while, I think a family estate, and the sort of kids have sort of taken over. Um, and then they have their Kerno range, and they do a bunch of like really fantastic Riesling and single vineyard stuff and bits and pieces. And then they have their brothers. So I'm not sure what the brothers whether it's bought fruit, they might supplement it with some bought fruit. I think it's mainly Adelaide Hills as well. Um, but, yeah, this, they're great. They're all good, really modern labels. They're really well made. They have a little bit of that modern sort of edginess going on without being, you know, too funky or anything like that. People are a bit scared of that. Um, great wines. I think you could probably pick up anything of theirs pretty happily and you, you're going you're gonna to like it. Really fantastic range of really kind of more light, modern-style sort of reds as well, and from things like Sangiovese and um, um, some, yeah, Cananau, which is, which is Grenache, but what it's called in Sardinia. So, yeah, check them out for all their things. But the Gris is, I think, about $30. Okay, and that's before the and then before, and you get M-E-double-S discount. Correct. Brilliant. And then you get 10% off of that. So. Well, but it's a really nice modern Gris if you want to try, you know, sort of maybe where sort of Gris going in some ways. It's a perfect spring-summer mm. drink, Corrie, but followed up, which um, we were trying at yeah. the tasting last week, was a very reasonable rosé put out by one of our favourite labels. Yeah, Vas Felix Rosé, $20. Unbelievable! I just don't know how you did it for the price. <laughs> are you are you being paid in there, or is it just a charity we're not, we're giveaway not. wine? Well, it, it's well, a good no. value rosé, and it's not. It doesn't. You know how you get some, you know, really cheap rosés, and they've just. It's just they've got in on the trend, and it's just no good. This is a really good quality wine for the price. Yeah, love lovely texture. You know, it's got a lot of, you know, lovely concentration and lots of lots of flavour. But, you know, still really sort of easy to drink and and looks quite serious for what it... You know, I think, as you're saying, rosés often in that price point can be a bit like what we call, you know, sort of lolly water. Yep, um, But that's certainly not. It's It's got a lot going on for that for that money. So, yeah, I was super impressed. Well, I mean, I'd had it before, but it's sort of, you know, sometimes you try them again and you're like, oh, yeah, this is really good. Slightly off topic. Mm. Um Last night I had from the Furno Distillery uh, in Tassie, I had their gin. Have you ever had this, Caro? I know the Furno mm. Distillery. What's the name of the gin? So, well, it's called Furno. I think it's called the Furno Gin, but they are, uh, again, you know, plug, plug, but they are sponsors of the Wheeler Centre Spring Fling event. And their gin is absolutely oh, yeah, gorgeous. Don't you don't have it at your shop? Jane's no. desperate to interject here. I'm pretty sure he's a friend of Jock Sarong's, isn't he? Yes. Oh, Jock. Yes, yes, because he writes about the Furno <laughs> Islands exactly. But, um, but yeah, I better I, get in I, contact with Jock then. Yeah. Well, I just wonder whether we should carry before too long. I was going to say before you know summer comes, but gosh, that could be months away. Um, we should maybe have a bit of a gin yeah. session too. I had I had lunch with um, my friend Penny yesterday, who's off on a Tasmanian wine tasting tour in a few days, and we had lunch oh. at Prince Wine Store. Yeah. Funnily enough. And in my travels at Prince Wine Store, yes, we're at Bellotta's next door. 
in my travels, um, I wanted to get some of that picnic pinot, but mm. there wasn't one available. No, I, I, I was fl- flogging it at the tasting. So that was the most popular. I think. One of your lovely friends <laughs> recommended um, the. Uh, it was also from that Otago region Otago, of New yep. Zealand called Scout. Oh yeah, they're very good. Oh, it was the most fantastic. And I'm not mm. a pinot drinker, Corrie, as you know. It was fabulous. I bought a b- bottle for Brendan. Tried it last night. Absolutely fabulous. They're great I'm wines. I notes, think yeah. Scout, and it wasn't super expensive. Maybe no, oh. they're not. Uh, I think a, if I remember I correctly, want to say thirty something. I think thirty-five. Yep. And they have a Chardonnay that's very, very good. Also Central Otago, and I think a Gris or a Riesling. We did offer a little while ago. Yeah, we've had them before and really liked the wines, but they used to make stuff. I think they made some stuff in Australia because I think they're Australian originally, maybe, or one of them is. And then they made some stuff in New Zealand from a few different places. And, and over the last couple of years, they've just sort of consolidated and just decided to stick with Otago. And we think that's been great because they've just sort of concentrated on all their Otago wines. And the last time that, that we looked at those and they came in, we loved everything. Wow. And we thought well, it was really well priced. I think we did a full offer to the database because we were like, "Oh, look, you know, everyone check out these wines; they're great." So that's another future. So Scout yeah. wines, another Scout. future. Mm. Um, well, covered a lot today, cabinet, isn't it? As you can see, I've done a lot of research <laughs> on print. Yeah. Yes, I don't know why I was asked and you weren't. Do I drink a lot? Um, do no, you drink a lot? Well, clearly, in the last week, I have. No, do no. You, I went to the doctor yesterday, and. Um, I'm going to have all my bloods. It's just a normal test. Nothing alarm. Please, potties. Thank oh, you. Oh, the don't, dreaded don't question. How many glasses how many of wine glasses a day? How many glasses of wine do you have a day? Do you drink every day? And I thought, mm, no, not every day. Probably. And she said, how many would you have? And I said, I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. And I probably have two max. And she went, oh, that's just within the limit. I don't know what the limit was for women. I have no idea. But I thought, you know, that probably works out on average because if you went to dinner on a Saturday or a Sunday night or something, you might have three glasses of wine and then you might have a day where you just have, you know me, my favourite time is to have it just while I'm cooking and then I don't usually have a glass when I'm eating. So that kind of limits it a bit. But yes, to the potty who asked, do I drink a lot? Probably yes. Ross Stevenson's famous story was his friend who went to the doctor and he said, how many glasses of wine do you drink a day? And he said, oh, three or four. And the doctor said, three or four? Which one? (laughs) I mean, when you say three or four, it's clearly five. Sorry, but it obviously I did have that conversation too afterwards. Somebody said, did you really tell the truth? I went, no, I was trying to be honest, you know, trying to be honest. Yeah, I say say two because there are a few nights in the week where I probably will just have one and I'll sort of be done with it. Mm. But I haven't been having any AFDs and so the last couple of months, or the last month maybe I've be making sure I get an AFD in the week. Yes, I my had, do- I had I some bloods done recently and my doctor was just like, look, you just, you've got to have a couple of days. Oh, so you drink did... every day? And I was like, yeah. Well, it's your, well, it's your <laughs> job. It's your job. It is my job. But, so just, so I think what, my job is to taste, not necessarily what did to drink. He notice, <laughs> what did he or she notice in your bloods? Oh, nothing. It all it all came <laughs> back. It all came back fine. It was for, it was process. for something else. It was a skin check, and and I got the skin check, and then he did a little heart thing. He said, "Oh, your blood pressure's a little high." And <gasps> do you know what? Do you know what? <laughs> so Dr. I said, Catherine, "Oh, yeah, okay." So Dr. He said, Catherine we'll do it all. said yesterday, "I have uh, the most perfect no blood pressure." She said, oh. "You have the blood pressure of a thirteen-year-old." Yeah, keeping it thin with alcohol. That's oh, well done, Corey. That's why. Well done, Miles. I think on that note, it's time to close the cocktail <laughs> yes, cabinet. Yes, that's right. Close the medicine chest. Consider a once in a while AFD. Um, remember, Prince Wine Store is where you need to go. www.princewinestore.com.au and use the promo code MEWS in store or online if you want to buy some wine and you get a 10% discount. Okay, Corrie, it's time for our favourite segment of the week, BSF, and you have a B for book. I do. Caro, it is called Salt and Skin, and it's by uh, a Victorian writer, Eliza Henry-Jones. I've seen this in the bookshops. Should I buy it? It's a beautiful cover. Or should I I borrow yours? Well, you can borrow mine for sure. No, you can borrow mine for sure. So um, there's a bit of, again, self-interest. Gosh, this is the self-interest moment, isn't it? But I interviewed um, Eliza Henry-Jones for the latest episode of the book pod. So if you haven't had a listen, please do, because she's such a wonderful talent. She's in her... 
maybe late 20s, early 30s, Carol. This is her fifth novel. So she's a very, she's a prolific, prolific writer. Yeah. Her books first came into the bookshop, sold okay-ish. I enjoyed a couple of them, but I have to tell you, I feel that she has really turned the corner with her writing with this one. And in fact, she says in the interview with me, she agrees with this. This is a gothic um, mystery. Um, at its heart, it really is a family drama. So the set the setup is there is an Australian family called the Manigan family and they are drought-affected farmers. And after a terrible tragedy, the mother, Lida, and her two children, Wilhelmina and Darcy, who are teenagers, um, make their way to the northern Scottish uh, islands, different islands around the Orkney Islands, but there's one island that they settle on. The reason they've gone from one side of the world to the other is that Leader is a photographer who specialises in environmental and global warming projects. So she's a, she's a photo essayist. She's an artist, really. And she gets this commission to track the um, impact of global warming on this particular group of islands. So the kids mm. are kind of brought out of their school and their um, and their outback Australian lifestyle into this little Scottish village. Like all Scottish villages, it has its cast of quirky, eccentric characters. But there is a mythology about this place that involves witches. And at the local church, um, which is Norman an old Norman castle, but in the day when witches were um, were tortured and locked up and killed, they had a little cell in this church, which you can still climb into, that um, that women who were outspoken, because that's usually what a witch was, um, and <laughs> and 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 played around with a few magic potions, being herbs and medicine. Um, they would put these women in in there. So there's this whole kind of setup of this um, this fear, but interest, particularly on behalf of Wilhelmina, the daughter. But um, as I said, at the heart of it is this um, this this family drama and unpacking what's happened. And I just can't give too much away. But the setting is amazing. The relationship between Lita and her two children, all three of them, are repairing after this tragedy in Australia. Um, it's about generational trauma. It's about um, abuse and bullying. Um, there's a rather wonderful um, character called Theo who, is a bo- who, as a little boy, was washed up on the shore. Nobody ever knows where he came from. Was it a shipwreck? Was he? Did someone put him there? Was he abandoned? But he's brought up by a local old village woman and he is now at the age of the teenagers. So a lovely friendship ensues there. And there's all of this unexplained phenomenon happening on this beautiful Orkney Island. Eliza, I think, has captured this magnificently. She never intended to write this kind of story. She's very much her head. She lives in the Yarra Valley. Her head is very much in the Australian landscape. But she and her husband went over to the Orkney Islands and she said almost as soon as she stood, she put her feet on that soil, this whole kind of story, this mysticism, just probably a bit like Hannah Kent told me once that when she went to Ryadjivik as um, a young Rotary student, she was overwhelmed by the need to tell the story of the place. And I think that's what's happened to Eliza. This takes her writing up a notch. Eliza Henry-Jones is a talent to watch. And I must say, Salt and Skin is a fantastic book club book. Highly, highly recommend it. Great. There you go. So you can borrow my copy, if you like, with your new bookmark from Spring I'd love Fling. to. And, Caro, now on to screen. Your turn. And Shetland. Yeah, well, oh. continuing with the Orkney theme, because, of course, between the Orkney Islands and Norway is Shetland, the most northern. It was called the Shetland Isles originally, the most northern part of Great Britain. Series 7, I've been absolutely binging it. You can get it on BBC First, on Foxtel. You can get it on Binge. Um, I think you can get it on a thing called Brickbox as well, which I've done occasionally. But look, Corrie, this is Series 7, as I said, of one of my favourite TV cops, Jimmy Jimmy Perez. (laughs) Jimmy Perez... Um, and dare I, sadly, this is his last appearance in Shetland. He announced um, a little while ago that he was leaving the series and he thought that was the end of the series, but the BBC have announced they're going to keep it going. And he's a bit concerned they're going to mess it up. That's um, another story. Maybe they're going to make um, Tosh, you know, DS McIntosh, um, played by Alison O'Donnell, the main character. But anyway, Series 7, when I started watching it, I thought, gee, 
Jimmy looks at Douglas Henschel, of course, looks a little bit older and, dare I say, a tiny bit paunchier. Well, he gets us all, a bit of middle age in the end. But then I realised I hadn't seen Series 6. Oh, so you've double binged. I've double binged. I went back. I sort of went back in time. So the last episode of Series 7, where we know will be Jimmy... Series 6. No, no, Series 7 screens this Sunday night. It's streaming, so you can't get it yet. So if you want to catch up... They're all in six parts, these stories. As we know, they're written by one of our favourite crime authors, Anne Cleves, who also wrote Vera. This one is just absolutely brilliant. Basically, Jimmy has a vague sort of love interest with a local woman who helped out with his father, who um, had Alzheimer's, which was a big theme in Series 6. Duncan, played by Mark Bonner, you know, the co-father of the daughter that they have, is in jail. You have to watch series six to find out why. And you probably, maybe you haven't seen it either. I'm sure I've seen series six because that rings a bell. And Tosh, who we find out is pregnant at the end of series six, is with her partner and a beautiful little baby. Now, there's a disappearance of a boy, seems to be um, connected with his father, who's a former cop who left the police force in disgrace, but there's a no- whole new story. A lot, like with all Anne Cleves' stories, there's layer upon layer upon layer. It is absolutely brilliant. I, I don't know how it's going to end, except I know that we're never going to see Jimmy Perez again because Douglas Henshaw wants to pursue other acting interests. I'm really sad. It's one of my favourite cop series. Those islands that you described in your book review of Sultan's Skin, I mean, the island of Shetland, it is so beautiful. It is, you know, it's obviously Arctic and you feel the cold, that beautiful little beach where his house is, the local pubs, the local wine bars. I mean, all amidst all the dreadful murders. And I think um, Douglas Henshaw said in an interview, how many more murders can you have on a small island? One of the reasons he's left, a bit like, you know, Midsummer Murders. But it is so, it's got so much more depth to it, brilliantly acted, really recommend Series 7 of Shetland. Oh, I can't wait. I'll get my woolly fisherman's jumper out. Just on fisherman's too, Caro. Do you know what I saw? Well, he wears that navy blue peacoat. Time to ditch the peacoat. Oh, I love that peacoat. I love Jimmy, actually. No, there were at the... British Film Festival yesterday, one of the shorts that came on was Fisherman's Friend Number 2. Yes, which I've rejected. You've piffed that. It actually looked quite fun. It had bad reviews. Oh, did it? And all the – Tuppence Middleton, all the people who appeared in the first one are not in it, all the characters around the Fisherman's Friends – and the, the wife the, is still there, and some of the fishermen are still there. Yeah, the actual singers. Yeah. Oh, look, I just the reviews sort of said, why did they make a sequel? Oh. Anyway, look, it is it is set in that beautiful um, what is it, Port Isaac? Mm, yeah. Um, anyway, um, so on to on from Shetland to your recipe. Now you you've you've reminded me that apparently I've done this recipe before. Well, it was either you or or. I because but I know we've done it because I've had potties talk to me about it but look go again go again it's at least Jane agrees that it's been at least a few years yeah, I um, think it was one of the first yeah. that we actually did and we've so. been going for over five years now Corrie God I can feel old. you believe it How many drinks? but look uh, cut to the chase I made it two weeks ago or maybe a week ago it is the easiest recipe it's a cake. Coconut and lime syrup cake. The reason I'm doing it now is because limes at the moment seem to be everywhere and good price in the supermarkets and greengrocers. It is one of the easiest recipes you'll ever make, best served on the day, but as long as you pour the lime syrup over the cake as soon as it's out of the oven so the warm cake absorbs all that beautiful limey, sugary syrup, um, that's fine if you wait on. You can even reheat it the next day. It's basically butter, eggs, three-quarter of a cup of milk, half a, one and a half cups self-raising flour, one and a quarter cups pasta sugar and desiccated coconut. That is it. And then, and the recipe will be on our show notes, the lime syrup is basically limes and sugar. It, um, well, it doesn't take very long to cook, I don't think. It only takes about... Um, I always grate the... Uh, do you do this or is this been part of the recipe? I know Joe gave me our recipe. Um, I grate lime into the syrup, so there's lovely little green flecks. Yeah, that's part of the recipe. Okay. Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. I didn't think I was going off piece. No, no, no. Can I just say with this recipe, in Julia Ostro... Doesn't take long to cook either. In Julia Bazutor Nishimura, better known as Julia Ostro, in her latest cookbook, this recipe is there, but she adds berries. So... um, 
really, really delicious um, option if you wanted to do that as well. And I think that her recipe would probably be online that you can find it or go and buy her beautiful cookbook. Well, if you've got people calling in for afternoon tea or morning tea, maybe bridge, maybe a lunch, maybe you want an easy pudding, beautiful with yogurt, beautiful with thick cream, beautiful with ice cream. It is such a beautiful cake and it's so simple, Corrie. I highly recommend it. Good old. Well, that was BSF for Red Energy. If you are moving house or if your own house, if you've decided to get rid of your existing utilities supplier, call local energy retailer Red Energy on 131806 and sign up like Caro and I have. Now, I'm grumpy, Caro. Why, Corrie? Um, the weather, Caro. <laughs> I was going to give you a traffic one. It doesn't involve driving through a puddle, I hope. I hope no, it's I was gonna, I'm going to sneak in two grumpies. I, honestly, how many times have I ended up on the Chandler Highway as you're going north toward Clifton Hill and the signage is so appalling you find yourself going around and around underneath the Bottle Street? The Highway. <laughs> oh, my God. And there you are back in Fairfield yet again. I've, I did it for the third time the other day. Uh, anyway, that's not my grumpy. My grumpy is the weather. Now, La Nina was very kind to us in Melbourne last year. She battered the New South Wales and Queensland coast but left Melbourne with a beautiful, um, very mild, beautiful, sunny summer. Well, this year, gloves are off. She's moved south And I've decided that I have this seasonal affective disorder. Have you heard of this? Better known as SAD. (laughs) No, this is true. This is true. Seasonal. In fact, my daughter-in-law, Lib, said that your daughter, Clem, had told her about something like this the other day when they were walking or they caught up. Was it the, well, the wind as well? You know, La Mistral in France seems them crazy. Oh, well, I'm going, I'm going crazy. And look, you know, again, as Carol and I always say, we are thinking of our flood evicted friends. We're, we are very lucky that we are not going through what Northern Victoria is going through at the moment. But can I just say that I actually feel, when I read the seasonal affective disorder symptoms, I realised that actually it is a form of, they say it is a form of depression and I think I have it. It's not unusual to feel these symptoms when autumn or winter come upon us for all the obvious reasons, but it's highly unusual Mm. when spring arrives and you're going into the third month of spring and I am really, really feeling it. So what are the symptoms? Lack of energy. I cannot tell you the last couple of weeks how just lethargic I have felt. Uh, sleeping too much, maybe not necessarily that, but very hard to get up in the morning, very hard, no longer motivated to go for the 6.30 or 7am walk, really worried about myself, but I don't want to go out in that rain. I'm feeling tired all the time. And another symptom of seasonal affective disorder is agitation and anxiety, which I must say I have been feeling a bit anxious, certainly driving. I've, now I live down at the coast. I have pulled out of a couple of Melbourne things because of the shocking weather predictions and that makes you grumpy and anxious that you're missing out on something, that you're letting somebody down. I do feel um, quite anxious when the big wind comes through, which has been terrifying over the weekend. So I'm pretty grumpy about the weather and the fact that it is the first week of November and I feel like I'm lacking vitamin D. I probably need some sort of light therapy. I need a psychologist. I don't know. But anyway. You need sun, Corrie. I need, need sun. sun. I need sun and we no wind. No, I mean, a few people have said to me in the last two days that the weather has made them depressed. Yeah, well, I, I, I am feeling I'm with that. you. And, I'm... you know, I'm usually a bit of a bright old button, I think, perhaps most of the time. <laughs> I'm feeling like there's a a nicer way to describe (laughs) you than that. (laughs) I just feel really flat and I'm really sick of it. And look, you know, look, I was lucky enough to go to Byron Bay in August. And even though it was very cold, it was sunny up there. And you and I had a couple of days in Mission Beach recently. But I feel like I, you know, not having been to sunshine this year, bring it on, I say, bring it on. So that's what I'm grumpy about today. You know, just very quickly, because driving is obviously an issue in this weather, if the puddle is deeper than a pen, a biro, you shouldn't be driving through it. Your car could start floating and you could die. Do not drive in a puddle deeper than an average biro. Jane's nodding. She knows because she's, you know, coming from the country. 
Corrie, seriously. No, 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 I'm not Don't looking. Laugh. Jane's been in the country for a year. No, but I know that Jane has other uh, old older country roots than that. No, I know. But that's why would you die if, if Well, I mean, if, if, if your car starts floats. floating, things can go horribly wrong. Yeah, I suppose so. So don't drive through puddles. You're actually right, Carrie. Like, even in our area that hasn't been really badly flooded, you know, you think, it's it's fine, it's fine. And, you know, I've had friends who have suddenly gone, oh, hang on. Puddles this, deeper than you well, think. it's yeah. going off the side of the road into a creek that happens oh, to now be a raging river. Where and your, yes. car, your yeah. car can float if, in, if the ten, puddle yeah. is deeper than a biro. Yes. Ten well, interesting on East Link on one of those wet days when I did come to Melbourne, it, the puddles were, I mean, everywhere's having trouble draining. Yes, I'm with Caro. Beware, potties. Now, Corrie, six quick questions to cap off the show for Red Energy, and I'm going to start. What's the closest you've ever been to a lion or tiger? Well, not a lion, but a tiger. In one of my first years as a journalist, a cadet journalist, I wrote a feature story. It was my idea, actually, to go and spend four days with the vet at the Royal Melbourne Zoo. And one of the things we had to do, or the vet had to do, was the tiger had an abscess on abscess on its tooth. So we had to go into the tiger enclosure, knock the tiger out. The men folk had to then carry the transport the tiger into the veterinary surgery, and then they operated on the tiger. And the vet is saying, "Come and you know feel his fur and patting it." And there's this big, huge sleeping. Th- yeah, thanks. I'll just watch. <laughs> The photographer Bruce Possel did, though. He was patting like fury. And it was a really good piece, actually, really good idea for a story. Um, Nothing more tigerish than an angry tiger, to quote Tom Hafey. (laughs) Tigers roar. Um, Caro, what criminal event shocked you this week? Uh, That vicious clown, uh, De Pape, breaking into the Pelosi house in San Francisco and attacking Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, and saying that the reason he wanted his original plan was to basically take out Nancy's knees with his hammer. Instead, he attacked Paul Pelosi. They're, I think they're both about in their early 80s, 82. I just thought that was the most shocking story. And to compound it, all these viral claims that have come out since the attack, I think one of them was tweeted by Elon Musk. Um, he didn't say this, but there's a claim that the attacker, it was David DePape, was in a same-sex relationship with Paul Pelosi and it was um, it happened after a drunken quarrel. This is the sort of stuff that's coming out after this man has been attacked in the head and in his body by a vicious, you know, intruder with a hammer. Did you see one of the right-wing television commentators oh. laughing about this the other day? It, that also went viral on Instagram and Twitter, laughing Elon at Musk, this. There's a tiny possibility there might be more to this story than meets the eye. Oh, that's just reprehensible. Um, the I was mi- mid- midterms in the US next week, everybody. So don't forget to uh, be listening to your Rachel Maddow podcast on that one. Corrie, following the Halloween theme, which book character scared you most as a kid? The White Witch in Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think you did a. Um, did you do something on yeah, I did. social I, media about I that did. the other oh, day? Corrie is reading. No, I was thinking about Halloween and I thought uh, last year my Halloween. Um, I, I walked with the kids in the streets of Ballarat and we went to a party afterwards and I actually had a panic attack. I told you about that last last time because there were 30 people in the backyard and kids and I'd just come out of lockdown and I had a panic attack. But this year, no Halloween, but I did write a little piece about um, the White Witch and why she is so terrifying and um, it wasn't Tilda Swinton. Have you seen that movie? Or oh, wait till Sunny's out in Australia Yeah, no, load I'd, up I'd, on that stuff. I would, I would love to see it. We never saw the Tilda Swinton one about the Aladdin, Aladdin's lamp, A Thousand Small Wishes. Oh, uh, no, we never saw that. That yeah, came out last year, so didn't Everyone it? said it was, well, this year, I think, yeah, finally. Mystical, yeah. It was, um, didn't get great reviews, but well, I would like to see it. Do yourself a favour and, and see her as the White Witch in The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe film. Cara, what slogan will you be happy to see the end of? Gamble responsibly. Finally, the state government, no, not the state government, the federal government has outlawed, but by next March, Corrie, when you are promoting gaming or betting agencies or odds or anything, you will no longer be able to say gamble responsibly because responsibly because hello, it doesn't actually get the message across. So there's about seven new slogans that the um, betting agencies are going to have to use. Things like, um, do you realise that you ever? What is it? You, you've got more. You, there is there is a good chance you will lose on this bet. Do you really? have the money to make this bet. Like, it's getting quite serious. It's, um, 
you know, off the back of smoking is a health hazard. Are we going down the slippery slope? Are we going to see the end of gambling ads? Oh, gosh, I hope so. At some so. point. Well, I, I hope so too. And that's why I'd rather visit Victoria, promotes a netball team, than a gaming agency or a gambling agency or a betting agency. So I, I really hope that we're, it's just starting to get to the end. And the federal government, if they've done this, should have the balls to go further into um, banning gambling ads, the ones that they're allowing to go on TV before 8.30, before the kids go to bed. I mean, they looked at doing a much more widespread ban. They didn't have the guts to do it. They were talked out of it by the NRL and the AFL, and I wish they had. Anyway, Corrie, your turn. What aspect of the Liz Trust fallout has most concerned you? Oh, she she drinks way too much coffee and uh, is very was very particular apparently during her time as home sec- as foreign secretary and as prime minister just for forty nine days, but she was quite demanding. And the story that I read said her demands on trips rivaled those of a rock star. So she demanded Liz Trust demanded coffee and lots of it, double espresso, in plastic cups. Um, she demanded in every hotel she went to that the hotel fridge had at least one bottle of Sav Blanc. And a former aide said she drinks about 42,000 espressos a day. Oh, and she used please. to, when I worked for her, she would sit there with a massive meatball, um, with a massive meatball <laughs> sub. Well, I think a meatball <laughs> sub is a sandwich or something. Well, that or, sounds, sounds like or, mean pile on or, to me. Or eat three croissants. She would carb up, frankly. No woman in her 40s should be eating that much and getting away with it. Um, so there's been a lot of dissecting of Liz Truss's uh, wants and needs during her time in office, and I just found the caffeine and the carbs and the grog one um, particularly alarming given <laughs> that all three can kill you, really. So, Liz, off to a health farm, I say. Well, now you're not running the country, but the man whose name I can't say anymore is... Sunak. Sunak. Corrie. Rishi Sunak. Corrie, what's... Uh, Corrie. Not the spice. Caro, who are you? Caro, what's your amazing fact? Well, I've done a bit of a deep dive into the Neil Diamond song, Sweet Caroline, because I went, as you know, to see Hugh Sheridan's Solitary Man show at the Hamer Hall last week, and the show closed with Sweet Caroline, and, you know, people clearly adore this song. Unfortunately for Hugh, I mean, most of the show was more about him than it was about Neil Diamond, which was a pity because I've heard him interviewed and he's talked about the inspiration for the song, which Neil originally said, written in 1969, I think it was, that his inspiration was Caroline Kennedy and a photograph he saw. Sorry, I think that was when he saw it. I think he wrote it in 72. He saw a picture on the cover of Life magazine on a horse and that was what inspired him. And over the next five years, you know, he thought about the song, this idea of so Caroline. So he was writing about a teenager. Oh no, eleven year old. He's writing about an eleven year old. No, well, well, he that was the inspiration. Oh. Just a gorgeous little girl. No, it wasn't it. No, it I wasn't knew there like was something that. Something creepy about. No, Neil it wasn't like that at all. He later said in 2014 he revised that story and said it was actually dedicated to his wife Marsha. Anyway, whose name is not. <laughs> But that was what it was about. Sweet. It didn't work. Marcia. He, he needed Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. He Marcia. needed a three syllable word and Marsha just didn't cut it. <laughs> this song, Corrie, amazingly, never made it to number one in the UK, America or Australia. But it did in your heart. It it came I think the highest it ever got was number two in Canada, number three in Australia, number three in the US, number three in the UK. It is played for some reason. And I don't know where this began, maybe with the Boston Red Sox in American baseball. It's played at sporting events. The Sydney Swans play it in Australia. It's played at Ascot, Pennsylvania State Uni. It was their song for a while, although we, actually, funnily enough, when they had that child sex scandal in 2011 or 12, they did stop playing it briefly, but they're now playing it at Penn State football games again. The University of Minnesota In the NFL, the Carolina Panthers, absolutely perfect. Northern Ireland's national football team, it's their theme song. What? It's played. I I could tell you about 20 UK sporting groups and all through America. When there was that tragic bombing at the Boston Marathon, I think that was in 2014, Neil Diamond actually appeared at Fenway Park a week later because they always play it for Red Sox games and perform Sweet Caroline and dedicated that week's Um, royalties. Okay, so here are the lyrics. Where it began, I can't begin to knowing. 
but then I know it's growing strong. Was it in the spring? And spring became the summer. I think everyone knows the lyrics. Who'd have believed you'd come along? Hands touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you. And he's written it about an 11-year-old Caroline. No, no, he just, that was the name, was the inspiration. Oh, for heaven's sake. Anyway, in 2019, the Library of Congress in in the state of, you know, in America, um, actually admitted it to their Library of Congress because of its cultural and aesthetic significance. Until earlier this year, I think it sold about 1.75 million copies. That was sort of around 2020. Every year, Neil Diamond was making between $300,000 to $500,000 a year, American dollars a year, because of all the times it's played. I mean, it's only, you know, a few cents each time, but it adds up clearly. Nearly half a million dollars a year. But what did Neil do in February this year? He sold his entire song title, book of song titles, to um, one of the big record companies. I think it was Universal. No, Universal. Heaven knows what he received for it. What a song. What an amazing fact. Carol, I'm very happy with that fact. Well, you know, obviously my name is Caroline. Oh, no. I've always paid a special interest to it. I actually met Neil Diamond. I didn't know that was your name. When I was in year 10 because I went to one of his shows at the Maya Music Bowl and we were given my friend Joe McDougall um, her uncle got a second row seat, and so we went backstage and met him, and he kissed my hand. And he oh, did. don't tell me you said, "Oh, my name's Caroline." I actually did. Oh. I said, "My name's Caroline," and I loved your show. And he took my hand and he said, "Thanks a lot, Gat Babe," and gave it a kiss. Because you were young. No, because I was a fan for heaven's sake. How old were you? Oh, about fifteen. Oh, I rest my case. <laughs> That is this week's amazing fact. I'm just interested that all these people like Bob Dylan and Sting, they're all selling all their songs. It must be profitable. It must be easier to manage for some reason. Neil Diamond got between reportedly $90 million to $150 million for his but, but catalogue. It's, you, you think about it, though, like, like all good succession planning, make it easy for the kids. Just make it easy for the kids. You know, if you die and your songbook is out there, and you've had three wives and seven children. I mean, Mick Jagger's progeny, how do they fight over that? True. You know he went to school with um, Barbara Streisand. He was a year year above her at their high school in Boston, and they sang in the same music group, but they weren't really friends. And that's how, and that when they got together to do You Don't Bring Me Flowers, which Neil wrote, they each did separate recordings, and he did it as about a... 50-second song to start some TV show. And then they extended the song and they went and recorded it together and they sold millions, made millions out of that too. That would have been a good school concert, wouldn't it? Imagine Neil and Babs. Oh, yeah, doing Oklahoma. Amazing, amazing. Anyway, that was a podcast for this week, Corrie. Thank you to Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. Thank you, Prince Wine Store and Miles. Visit princewinestore.com.au and click on the Don't Shoot the Messenger page for all of Miles' recommendations and special discounts. You can connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to get our show notes delivered into your inbox every week, hit the Sign Up button on Facebook or on our show notes or send an email and we'll subscribe you. That email is feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Corrie? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's Most Trusted Energy Providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au.